the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you've heard the show before, you know the routine. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we may talk about nostalgia or whatever, but we'll go into that a little bit later. And as most of you know, we start the show with one of our attorneys. This time we have our Polish-speaking attorney, Carolina. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer. Hello, everyone. Okay, so, Carolina, we're talking about a couple of things, but uh, the first thing I think you brought up was charitable giving. Yes, so we have a holiday season ahead of us, and a lot of clients, they ask about Charitable giving, what's the best way to pass the assets to charitable organization? Okay, well, there are a couple of different ways if you, if you want to make gifts to charity. And assuming you don't want to make, the person doesn't want to make a gift today while they're alive, because obviously all they have to do is write a check. And the one advantage to that is if they need a charitable deduction, let's say if they do write a check before the end of the year, uh, they can take that charitable deduction off the tax return next April 15th. Um, and some people do that. They they find out they've had a good year financially, and they want to uh, get some, some something to reduce their taxes. So they may make a gift to a organized charity, and in that way, you know, take that gift as a deduction, lower their taxes for the next year's return. Um, but assuming we're talking about estate planning, there are a couple of different ways we can do it. One, you can name the charity as beneficiary of your accounts, which I'm not crazy about that because I've seen a couple of times where there are little mix-ups. In other words, you name a charity as beneficiary, you have your bank account and trust for a named charity, but the named charity doesn't know you died, and the account just sits there, maybe eventually goes to abandoned property. 
So I'm not crazy about that because, and, and not only that, if some people, they put all their assets in trust for a charity, there's no, or joint or, or whatever, well, you wouldn't put a joint with a charity, but in trust for a beneficiary form with a charity, and then you don't have any money to pay your funeral bills and so forth. So I'm not the biggest fan of putting the assets in trust for or named as beneficiary of the charity. Now, you can leave it through your will. The problem is if you leave it through your will, it's going to go through probate. And probate usually takes, especially if you don't have relatives who are going to consent to the will, probate takes forever to get through court if you have relatives that don't consent to your will. And a lot of times when people do leave money to charity, they don't have relatives. And, of course, some people say, well, it doesn't matter. I don't have any relatives, so it's not going to be a delay. If you don't have relatives at all, what happens is the state publishes the the estate has to publish in newspapers. Uh, the court supervises everything, and they want to do everything reasonably possible to notify any relatives, whether it's a first cousin once removed or any descendant of your grandparents who might be alive have a right to challenge your will, and the will will not be probated unless all the descendants of your grandparents are officially notified. Now, if you have children, we don't have to notify cousins or first cousins once removed. If you have uncles and aunts, we don't have to, you know, notify cousins. But in ordinary circumstances, or brothers or sisters. But if you're next of kin, if you have no relatives, we in New York State, you want to make sure that all the descendants of your grandparents who are alive have been notified. And that can be time-consuming and exhaustive. You may have to hire a genealogist. You may have to publish in a newspaper, probably both. And that could take years. Now, if you're leaving it to recognize charities, that may not be so bad because hopefully that charity is in business for more than a few years. And whether they get the money now or a few years from now is not going to make that much of a difference. So that's the way you leave it through your will. The third way you can leave it is through a trust. That is probably the most preferred way because if you leave the assets to charity in a trust, it doesn't go through probate, but you have a person, a trustee, somebody that you trust to carry out the terms of the agreement, and they will get the assets over to charity after you're gone. There's no court proceeding. There's no probate. Obviously, and I shouldn't say obviously, but there's no tax on the assets given to a recognized charity. It's recognized by the IRS, 501c or whatever, but it's recognized by the IRS and then there's no tax and you get a charitable deduction, which in some cases can be very important. Like if you have an estate in the borderline of $7 million, sometimes a charitable deduction of $100,000, I don't know it sounds strange, could leave your children with more than $200,000 more in in the estate because the deduction gets better than dollar for dollar. And that's a very rare finding, but that's in the case you're you know, close to $7 million, and you're on the precipice, you know, as far as New York State, the state tax. So I'd say the best way probably to leave assets in a trust is through a trust agreement. You say whatever you want to leave to the charity, whether it's certain bank accounts, whether it's a set of money. Ordinarily, it makes it easier for your trustee. If you leave the charity a set amount in your, whether it's through your will or through your trust, because if you leave a percentage, the charity can become a business partner in your in your estate, and they can question everything your trustee executor does. And sometimes people don't want to make it hard for their executor trustee. They want to make it simple. So they say, I leave $100,000 to this charity, 100000 to that charity. And then the trustee also has money to pay your bills. 
which you don't want to leave a position where, let's say for the sake of argument, you leave, you have a million dollar estate and you leave a million dollars to charity and then you don't have anybody to pay your funeral, your last couple of months rent, um, some of the other miscellaneous expenses that could pop up after you're gone. So I would say, again, the best way is usually through a trust agreement. The second best way, if your charity doesn't mind waiting, do it through a will. We're going to have to go through probate. It's going to take a long. Third, if you want to, if it's a small amount, you can leave it directly to the charity as a beneficiary on your bank accounts and trust for, payable on death, transfer on death with the name charity as beneficiary, just as long as you don't put everything you know, as charitable beneficiary that you leave enough money and you have a pocket of money, a pool of money to pay your your bills. So there's no one right answer for everybody. It all depends on what you're going to leave, how you're going to leave it. And if you leave everything to charity, well, then we probably want to do a trust agreement. And the trustee will have to account for all their expenses and everything to the attorney general's office uh, to see that everything's properly handled. So Again, if you're going to leave a significant amount to charity, I would probably do it through a trust agreement. All right, Carolina, what was the other thing we were going to discuss today? All right, so now we will change the subject. Not every family is perfect, and some families, they do not get along. Some clients ask uh, about this inheriting one of the children. Okay, so let's say for the sake of argument, you want to disinherit a child. And, and of course, it could be a variety of reasons. Uh, one reason maybe the child is disabled and can't appreciate the inheritance, which in that case, we still might want to leave something in trust for that child, what we call a supplemental needs trust. In other words, where you can leave a disabled child a certain amount of assets to, if nothing else, maybe pay for their funeral and give them some little luxury items or whatever, even if they're on in a group home or something like that. But that may, may be one reason why some people would disinherit. And years ago, people, you know, if they had a child who was on Medicaid in a group home or something like that, the, the general feeling was, well, don't leave them anything because the state would grab it. Well, you can leave them some money in a supplemental needs trust. Whatever money's left over, you choose the beneficiaries, which is going to be probably your other family members or possibly a charity that's taking care of the disabled child. So that's one way to do it. Uh if, you, if you're going to disinherit a child, you want to avoid probate because if you go through probate, every child that you may have gets what's called a citation, and they're given the opportunity to contest your will. And it, it may not seem fair, but that's what it is. So let's say you have a child. It's been a problem. He's stolen from you, and, and these things happen. You know, your child is stolen from you. He's got a criminal record. Uh, every dollar you've given him to him over the years has just been thrown out the window. You know, he, he, he squandered all his money. He squandered your money. Uh, he's made your life a living hell. And now it's time you want to leave, let's say, your assets to your other two children. What you want to do is set up a trust so this child, this problem child, doesn't necessarily have to get a copy of your will. And it can go outside of court and go directly to the other children you have named in your will. Now, uh, another tool we can do is leave, let's say if you have a million-dollar estate, leave $25,000, $50,000 to the child you intend to disinherit. 
and say if the child contests the will, contests the trust, that child gets nothing. So in other words, if there you are at the end, and let's say you got a million-dollar estate, and you give this child who, quote, you want to disinherit $25,000 and say if this child does contest the will, the child gets nothing, that's a strong incentive for the child not to contest the will because the, the, the type of children who always go through money, who blow money, um, usually you throw something in front of them, whether it's $25,000, $50,000, they're going to take it because they need money. And, of course, the higher the amount, the better, the more less likely you're going to have a problem. So in your will, in your trust, you say, I leave, let's say, to the child who's going to cause a problem, $50,000. If the child contests the will, he or she doesn't get the $50,000. So that's the, you know, another way you can handle the problem. The main thing I would say, no matter what, is try very hard to avoid probate. Because if you avoid probate, the child doesn't have to be officially notified. You avoid probate when you pass away. There are no assets in your name alone when you pass away. Let's say if you have a house, it's in a trust. You have bank accounts, you have beneficiaries. You have treasury bills, you have a payable on death. You have a brokerage account, you have a transfer on death with other named beneficiaries. That will avoid probates on that account. If you have a bank account, whether it's in trust for or joint, that will avoid probate. So... The, the one way to keep a child who you're trying to disinherit to stop them from getting a true advantage is to avoid probate where you don't have to officially notify them in court. And, of course, one other thing you do, if let's say you have a child and you really want to protect your other children from that child who's always going to court, always causing a problem, you would do more than one will. So let's say for the sake of argument, you have a child and... You do a will in 2023, then six months later in 2024, you do another will where you don't name that child. And maybe, depending on how time and circumstances go, you do another will in 2025, not naming the child in your will. So that child, if he wants to contest your will, he's got to throw out the 2023 will, the 2024 will, the 2025 will. And that is virtually impossible because he has to win three trials. He could get lucky on one jury. It's unlikely he's going to get lucky on three. And, of course, no lawyer would take one of these cases on a contingency if he has to win three trial cases. He's not going to do it because the law is basically this. If you do a will, every will you do, it's not jumped together. It's not joined together. So if you do a will one day and you do a will a second day and you do a will a third day, if somebody wants to throw those wills out, they got to win three separate trials to win those cases. We had a case years ago. I just saw one of the family members not that long ago. We had a case years ago where somebody did a will on October 30th. The lawyer printed up a will in his handwriting, talked to the client, had it signed. The next day, the will was typed up. The identical will difference between being printed up in handwriting and typed up. The identical will was signed on October 31st. For whatever reason, the objections to the will, the kids who were left out of the will, got one of the nurses who were attending mom and said she may not have been mentally competent on the day the will was signed. The will, you know, sometimes a jury, you never know what they're going to buy. The jury threw the will out. But then we're able to probate the will signed the day before on October 30th. 
that will was admitted to probate and then mom's wishes were carried out. So that's one of the, it's a very powerful tool. If you're going to do, do more than one will, because it's almost impossible to throw two wills out. It's almost impossible to throw one will out. But if you have two or three wills, it is virtually impossible to throw it out because you got a trial each time. And yeah, it's very, very true. You don't know how juries are going to react. And of course, one of the things I've learned over the years, which was hard to learn, was that juries have a tendency to think the family should divide things equally. So you got to overcome that prejudice. And one of the ways you can overcome that prejudice is do a series of wills that we don't name that child who's going to cause a problem. I think we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You'll listen to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Hi, this is Patrick White. I had the good fortune to be raised by a man of strength and courage, a man of true grit. My father, John Wayne, died of stomach cancer in 1979, and in his characteristic style, he ignored advice to keep his disease quiet and campaigned publicly to encourage preventive treatments. 
He inspired our family to carry on that mission and to fight what my dad called the Big C. All this has been made possible by my father's legacy of determination and a community of supporters who have helped expand upon that legacy. If you'd like to know more about what the Wayne family is doing to fight cancer, just go to johnwayne.org. now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, we're getting to, you know, holiday season, Christmas season. We're getting to the end of the year. And, you know, some of us out here, maybe we made a little bit more money than we thought we made, and we're looking for some deductions. And the end of the year is not a bad time to make some charitable deductions. And, and one of the favorite charities that our listeners and our clients like to think about is St. Jude's Hospital in, in Tennessee. And we have two representatives, Karen McAllister, Lauren Wallenstein. And they've been on the show before. And, again, welcome to Connor's Corner. Thank you. Thanks for having us back. Thank you. Now, you know, our clients... For the most part, they're all going to know who Danny Thomas was. But, you know, there are a lot of people, I know a lot of people in my office, they have no idea who Danny Thomas was. Can one of you guys tell us who he was? Why don't you take that? Sure, sure. So I think a lot of people will remember Danny Thomas, hopefully, for um, being a legendary entertainer and comedian um, and a star of the, the wonderful hit show Make Room for, da- uh, Make Room for Daddy. Um, but, you know, for the for those of us at St. Jude, we celebrate him as our founder. Um, you know, Danny Thomas, when he was very young and starting out um, in his comedy career, he was really, really having a tough time, you know, getting work and 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 you know, getting getting his start. And so, you know, as he was pursuing this career, he and his wife were expecting their first child. Um, and shortly after her birth, you know, he realized that he didn't even have enough money to pay to, to get his wife and, and newborn daughter, who is, of course, now known as Marlo Thomas, um, out of the hospital. And, you know, it was at that point that he really decided, you know, I, I, this is my last chance. I really, I feel this is my calling in life. I, I want, you know, to pursue pursue entertainment, but I, I may just need to give it up. And so he, as a devout Catholic, um, you know, went to prayer, went to, into, found himself in a church and praying to St. Jude Thaddeus, who is the patron saint of, um, hopeless causes um and in his prayer he just said you know if you will show me my way in life i will i will i will build a shrine to you i will i will repay it some way somehow and the very next day um you know and only the way the world can can work um he received a call and an audition for what i think was a singing toothbrush commercial on the radio and he received it and it paid exactly the amount that he needed to get his daughter um, and wife out of the hospital and pay for that bill. And so that was really kind of just the, the start of, of really the sign and the start of his career. And he just took off from there and he never forgot that promise. Um, and so many years later, he really consulted one of his close um, you know, friends and personal advisors who was a cardinal in the Catholic Church, Cardinal Stritch. And, you know, said, I have this decision. I see, you know, children that are, are dying at, you know, this very young age of, of, you know, diseases like leukemia, and there's not a lot being done. You know, I want to, I want to build a hospital 
and I want to fund research so that we can help ensure that children never die in the dawn of life. And so through his relationship with the Cardinal Stritch, um, they determined Memphis. A lot of people wonder why we're in Memphis. Um, Memphis is, is the perfect spot, one, because it's you know, at the time was centrally located in terms of the interstate system that was being, you know, developed in, around the country. Um, it was right on the Mississippi River. So from a, a standpoint of serving a nation, it seemed to be, a, you know, a centralized location that was easily accessible by road and, and by, um, you know, by, by all means of transportation. Um, but it was also chosen because at the time we were, of course, this is, you know, in the, the late 50s and early 60s, you know, the, the decision was made that, um, you know, by putting a hospital like this in Memphis, Tennessee, in the deeply segregated South, Danny felt very strongly in also, um, you know, ensuring that all children, regardless of race, religion, creed, um, ability to pay, that all children would receive treatment. Um, and so Memphis, is, it, St. Jude is actually, you know, really credited with helping desegregate Memphis in, in a variety of ways, but, you know, first and foremost for, for treatment um, of children. And so, you know, Danny, Danny went to, went, you know, traveled all throughout the country and went to the community and just asked people to step up and, and help him with this vision. Um, you know, the, the saying is that he apparently, you know, really sketched the idea of a hospital on the back of a cocktail napkin while he was in a meeting with um, some advisors just talking about this decision. And so the initial, you know, the initial drawing of what the hospital might look like was on the back of a back of a cocktail napkin. I mean, this is how grassroots he really was in his dream and his vision. And so, you know, by fundraising across the country, which is what we continue to do today, and we're, we're so incredibly fortunate and thankful for all those that, you know, make gifts of, of every size, you know, Danny was able from starting really in, I would say, 19, probably 57, 1958, um, was able to achieve his vision. And we opened the doors of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in 1962, um, so over 50 years ago. And, and ever since then, we've been able to see just dramatic um, progress in terms of, of um, the work being done and, and the, the survival rates across many childhood diseases, but particularly cancer. One of the things that we're very proud of is that when we opened the doors of St. Jude in 1962, the survival rate for um, across all childhood cancers was only 20%. And we've now flipped that to 80%. So rather than 80% of children dying, you know, the dawn of life because of childhood cancer, it's now um, 80% are surviving. And, you know, we aren't going to stop until we hit that 100% and really achieve Danny's dream that, that no child should, should die. Um, you know, we're also especially proud of, you know, the, one of the diseases that he was most touched by when he had this vision was um, leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia is the most common form of childhood cancer. And when we opened the hospital, uh, the survival rate was only, um, was only 4%, and now it's over 94%, which is just unbelievable. So, you know, again, 94%, absolutely incredible, but, you know, until we, we, we are able to, to make it a full 100%, that 6% still matters um, a lot, and so we continue to do the good work. Now, you touched upon it a little bit, but but how how much does somebody have to pay if they have their child in St. Jude's? Absolutely nothing. I'm glad you asked that, and, and yeah. that's you know, part of Danny's vision is that um, no child um, receives, no family receives a bill for treatment, housing, food, transportation. Um, you know, Karen and I are both here in the, the New York um, tri-state area, 
And we can tell you that we have uh, several families that we we know personally um, who are St. Jude families. And when they, um, you know, have been treated at the hospital, they, you know, had to pick up and um, many of them move and and actually live in Memphis during the the duration of their treatment. And they were provided housing. They were provided food. um, Everything was absolutely taken care of because we know that we just need families to focus on helping their child heal and helping your child, you know, fight this battle with their health um, and not have to worry about, you know, am I going to have to take a second and third mortgage to, to pay for, for pay for anything? How are we going to keep our jobs? How are we going to do any of this? And so um, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, let, let me ask you something like how can somebody find out? Let's say they, they have a child that needs treatment. How do, they, how do they find out whether they can get treatment at St. Jude's? Um, that is something that they can, first of all, do research on our website. Um, we have a very comprehensive website, www.stjude.org. They can find out. And we also have a referral number. Um, and unfortunately, I don't know it off the, the back of my hand. Um, Laura, do you happen to know our referral hotline number? I don't off the top of my head, but I can tell you that we can absolutely follow up if that's something that you would want to, you know, put up on a, a website or share um, in a future in a future story. Or I'll try to even pull it up at the end of the, the end of our conversation today. But I can tell you that if they just simply search, um, even using something as simple as Google and search um, Saint Jude Patient Referral, it will take them to a landing page, and they can um, find the phone number there. And they can also, if they prefer to communicate by email, that's also an option. Okay. Well, yeah, and actually, I have the number right here. I found it. It's one eight 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 two two six four three four three. And often, what happens is um, either someone will get referred to St. Jude from their pediatrician or pediatric oncologist, or um, the family will find out about us and reach out. But we, Laura and I, both hear this story over and over, where families will reach out and are shocked and amazed that they get a phone call directly from the researcher and physician within 24 hours. And there have been cases where um, this also is not uncommon, where a family will connect with us and the physicians will say, basically, 24 hours hours later, we've booked you a flight, we're going to get you on a plane, we're going to get you here and um, have a consultation and see if we can help you. So we're very responsive that way. Let me ask you a little bit more about the history uh, of St. Jude's. Okay, ni- 1962, opening facility. How big was the institution? How many people were employed? And where are you today? Oh, goodness. You know, I don't know that I would know how many were employed, but I can tell you that it yeah, was one building. Yeah, I don't building. know how many people um, were employed, but I know that the hospital originally was a somewhat, they call a star shape. It looked more like a, a mini sunburst, a partial sunburst. Um, and the hospital side right now has somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 employees. Um, we have 78 to, um, I think it's 78 licensed beds, but, and that may be a small number for a hospital, but that's because much of our treatment, because it is cancer treatment, it's on an outpatient basis. Um, so kids will come to the hospital in the morning, 
they'll go through all the appointments that they need during the day, and then they'll go to one of our housing facilities. Because some of our treatments take up to three years, um, we have different housing facilities for different lengths of stay. So it's really nice because the kids get a break from being at the hospital um, when they're staying in one of the housing facilities, and they form very strong bonds with the other families that they're going through the, a similar journey with. Now, let me ask you, can you give us some uh, anecdotal stories? What kind of accomplishes, accomplishments have your research has done over the last, well, whenever, since 1962? Sure. So, I mean, I think you heard me mention earlier, but the, just the fact that our our um, research protocols have led to treatment plans that are used beyond CHU. I think that's what's also really, really remarkable about Danny's vision so early on was that Danny Thomas was really the first one to say, let's, you, you, you can often hear, I think, uh, these days, the term bench to bedside. And that was really a model that was developed at St. Jude in terms of having the researchers and the clinicians in the same space so that the researchers were seeing firsthand the the application of the the treatment and protocol plans that they were developing um and that the you know clinicians and, and doctors and physicians could report back directly and so you know you heard me mention earlier though that in terms of just acute lymphoblastic leukemia because of that we've been able to um improve the survival rate from 4% to 94%, which I think is just absolutely incredible. I can also tell you that sickle cell disease um, is something that, you know, affects, um, I think it's like one in three, approximately one in, I think, 350 um, African-Americans and Latinos. And the, um, you know, there had not been any type of cure to this disease, which is very painful and often results in a, a you know in a short um, lifespan, um, until St. Jude actually discovered a cure through um, uh, um, oh, and I'm blanking on the the, the term, um, but through a, a bone marrow transplant. Thank you, bone marrow <laughs> transplant. I was coming up with the wrong term. Um, and so while, you know, we're, we're looking for all other maybe less invasive cures, um, you know, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Um, and there's also something that, you know, about two years ago, um, a researcher of our, a colleague of ours, a researcher who unfortunately passed away before the final, um, final research was released, but had spent his career on something called bubble boy disease, where it's an autoimmune disease that's rare but affects children so severely that their lifespan is, you know, usually just a, a few years, if even, um, and actually developed a cure, which is, again, just absolutely remarkable for these families that, you know, when the child is diagnosed, you know, until then had no, really no hope for their child, for their child's future, because it's such a, such a devastating disease. So, you know, cures are actually happening at St. Jude, and, you know, along the way, every single day on the road to the cure, the treatment plans are becoming more and more developed so that, um, you know, until there's a cure, the longevity uh, of one's um, life is, is increased, but also the quality. I think quality of life is always at the forefront of anything and everything that we do. All right. Now, again, we're toward the end of the year, which some people, you know, had a tough year maybe at the beginning of the year. Maybe they're coming back a little bit, and they've made a little bit more money than they think, and they could use a charitable deduction. And, of course, you know, like in, in our part of the country, we're up here and, and we're broadcasting right now from Brooklyn, there are a lot of people who are real estate rich, 
but maybe cash poor. And if they do a will, if they do a trust, to leave either a set amount or a percentage to St. Jude's, how would how would they learn? I mean, you can always give us a call at this office, but how would they learn more about how you use the money from St. Jude's and, and where to make charitable donations? Sure. Well, um, honestly, our website is the best place to learn a lot or contact somebody like me um, that could get you in touch with a local representative that could talk to you a lot more about um, the different aspects of the organization that can be supported. Of course, we're always... Um, we're always looking for unrestricted monies because then we can apply it towards whatever happens to be the most necessary at the moment. But um, we definitely have, um, I mean, we're a research powerhouse. We do fantastic patient care. And um, if anybody is, uh, you know, interested in leaving it that way, we are always incredibly grateful. Um, we, we have a very robust, um, sort of planned giving or bequest program and anyone who notifies us that they are part of their uh, that we are part of their estate plans becomes a member of what we call our Danny Thomas St. Jude Society where they're invited to local events and events in Memphis they get in touch with their local um, representative that can fill them in on all the new things happening all the time at the hospital but if anybody wants to make a direct contribution through an outright gift or a gift of stock, the best place um, is to contact us. And our address is 501 St. Jude Place in Memphis, Tennessee, 38105. Or they can contact me if they're in the tri-state area, and I can um, refer them to the appropriate person. And my number is 860 235 8226 and again my name is Karen McAllister. Karen, can you repeat that number again, please? Sure. It's um 860-235-8226. Okay, do you ha- do you guys have anything else to add to our audience uh, about St. Jude's or Just the only thing that I would add is we are in Incredibly grateful for our supporters. They are honestly the lifeblood of our organization. And what we'd love to tell our supporters is St. Jude is their hospital. They truly keep the doors open. They directly impact a child's life. Um, and any opportunity that they have to either get involved in any of our events or attend one of our Danny Thomas St. Jude Society events, they'll hear from local patient families. So they'll get to hear directly how their support has impacted people. Um, and very exciting, we're in, in the middle of an expansion project because one of the things that's occurred is we are treating more children. So um, we're looking to build another housing facility, and um, we're almost complete with a brand-new advanced research center. And then we'll be starting uh, groundbreaking on a whole new uh, building for our clinics because um, at St. Jude we don't just treat the child for just their illness. We're we're very holistic in our treatment. So, for example, a child with cancer going through chemotherapy. Chemotherapy affects all kinds of things besides their cancer. It affects their teeth. It affects their lungs, their heart, 
So we have a whole set of ancillary medical services. They get to see dentists, ear, nose, and throat doctors, um, you know, a heart specialist, all anything that they might need is right there and it's on our campus so they don't have to make other appointments anywhere else. So we try to make it as easy on the families as possible. Okay, in wrap-up, can one of you give us the website again? Sure, that's www.stjude.org. Okay, you know, in conclusion, let's thank Danny Thomas for what he's done. And I think the best way to thank him is to make a contribution to St. Jude's. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you. All right. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much. You're doing the Willow's work. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable I sometimes wonder is there something more could God in church be what you're looking for come and see at catholicscomehome.com do you have somewhere to sleep did you eat today are you making ends meet for thousands of New Yorkers the answer is no for children and youth adults seniors people struggling with addiction or mental illness and for the isolated Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there with 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation we help change lives and build communities if you or someone you know needs assistance call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothe them, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Thanks again to the people at St. Jude's for all the work they do on behalf of the poor children with cancer. Um, Beth, you had a question you wanted to put up? Yes, and it's perfect for this time since we're talking about charities and everything. But here's the question. How much money can I gift legally without paying a gift tax or having to, fa- to file a gift tax return? Okay, well, those are two separate questions with two different answers. One, since we were just talking about charitable giving, whatever you give to charity, you don't have to file a gift tax return. So if you make a check out to St. Jude's, you make out a check to St. Francis in Beirut, the John Wayne Cancer Foundation, you don't have to file a gift tax return, whatever the amount is. How much is deductible may depend on your income for that year. Now, what's very confusing to a lot of people 
is the difference between having to file a gift tax return and having to pay a gift tax. If you give more than $17,000 in a calendar year to one person in this year, 2023, you're obligated to file a gift tax return. So let's say we've got a husband and wife. They have two children. Both children are married. The wife can give $17,000 to her daughter, $17,000 to her son, $17,000 to her daughter-in-law, $17,000 to her son-in-law. So if we do the math, I think that's $68,000. She does not have to file a gift tax return. The husband can do the same thing. So that's what, $136,000 they can give away legally today and not have to file file a gift tax return. Now, let's say they give away more than, and by the way, I should mention, the $17,000 amount is going to turn into $18,000 next year by next year, January 1st, 2024. So in other words, this couple could give $136,000 today, not have to file a gift tax return, and then next year give away what? $174,000 and not have to file a gift tax return. So in, in that they could give way more than $350,000 and they don't have to file a gift tax return. Now, there's a big difference between what you, when you have to file and what you have to pay. There is no gift tax as far as the federal government is concerned, and I'm trying to remember what the number is going to be next year, but it's roughly $13,900,000. So if your lifetime gifts are under $13,900,000, there's no gift tax. And the, Go ahead, is it to one person or is that your lifetime gifts? All the gifts that you've given in your lifetime. Subtracting the seventeen thousand amount it used to be ten thousand dollars for years and years. Okay. The seventeen thousand dollar amount today, the eighteen thousand dollar a month next okay. year. So in other words, if you gave one million and eighteen thousand dollars to one person today, you'd file a gift tax return, the eighteen thousand would come off, and then you're credited or debited, let's say, with a million dollars. So that's the way. So that's really why gift taxes usually are not a problem for the middle class. And some people say, why do I have to pay? Or why do I have to file a gift tax return if I don't have to pay it? Well, I guess the IRS is looking for, you know, money laundering things. They want to keep track of money. They want to know where money's going back and forth. And at a principle, if you're very wealthy, you could, if you didn't have to file, you could probably do enormous amount of transfers, not file. And, you know, maybe get away with it, not paying your estate tax that you're due. Because what happens is if you own estate tax, they add on to your estate at the end, whatever you have in your taxable estate at the end, they add on the gifts that you made over the $17,000 amounts, the credits or the $18,000 amounts next year. They add it back to your estate. So if somebody made, let's say it was an even $13 million as far as the estate tax was. So let's say you gave away a million dollars and you left $13 million. You would be taxed on that million dollars when you're, after you're gone, when you, your family files the final returns. Now, New York State runs it a little bit differently. There's no gift tax in New York State in and of itself. But if you die within three years of making the gift, the with those gifts that you made within three years of your passing, come back into your estate. So if somebody gave away, you know, $6 million today and they died two and a half years from today, 
that $6 million comes back into the taxable estate of the person who died, who made the gift. And, of course, you might say, why? And, and some, some people make a lot of gifts in New York State because New York State has a draconian rule on gifts. In other words, if somebody has, I'm, I'm going to go with this year's rules, but if somebody has a, an estate of $6,500,000 roughly, they die with a $7 million estate, the kids are paying like $700,000 in taxes. And, and that is draconian when you figure that if you had a $6.5 million estate, you pay zero taxes. So if you make a gift, the IRS, you just put it down and they're not going to have a look back period, so to speak. Well, they add it on to your estate when you But when they're you're not going to, you're going it, to, it's not your estate that you're paying ta- the death taxes on, right? Yes, it is. If you go over okay. thirteen million, thirteen million nine hundred thousand next year, and I know a lot of people are saying, "What? What are you guys talking about?" I don't have thirteen million nine hundred thousand dollars, and that's true. The the thing is, if somebody out there, if you do have more than thirteen million dollars, uh, you need to do some tax planning because obviously your children may be paying taxes. But here's the one good thing about the IRS and the federal rules. Let's say you got a husband and wife. Husband dies, and I'm I'm going to use thirteen million just as an even number. Husband dies, he's got a $13 million credit when he dies. His wife can file a return, a 706, take his $13 million and add it on to her estate so that when she dies, she can leave $26 million tax-free to her kids as far as the federal government is concerned. Remember, we're not talking about New York State. We're talking about the federal government. So that would be $26 million she could leave her family. So let's say we had a husband and wife here in New York. And husband died, let's say they have a you know, fifteen million dollar estate. Well if husband dies, lose everything to wife, wife dies a New York State resident, the children are gonna pay like one million five hundred thousand dollars in taxes. But let's say the wife files this federal return, there's no federal tax due, and let's say the wife then moves to Florida and establishes Florida residency before she dies, well then the children pay zero taxes, which is of course a lot of one of the reasons why a lot of wealthy people move to Florida. They, they don't want to pay that tax. And, you know, that's the way you can escape it. And, you know, even like New Jersey doesn't have a tax to children, doesn't have a death tax going to children. And most of the states in this country do not have death taxes. You know, it's about 18 of the 50 states have death taxes, whether it's an inheritance tax or an estate tax. You know, only about 18 states in this country, and most of them are from the Northeast, and the Midwest, North Midwest. Very few southern states have an estate tax, if any. Uh, even California, my understanding is, does not have an estate tax. And But if you're in New York and you got more than $7 million worth of assets, or close to $7 million worth of assets, you better do some planning because a lot of people are under misconceptions what's part of their estate. Oh, I have a joint account with my daughter. That's not part of my estate. Yes, it is for estate taxes. If you have a joint account, let's say, between mother and daughter, and mother's Social Security number is on the account, it's going to be all taxed to the mother's estate, even if the daughter has half the account in her name. Uh, if you have a, you know, a, a house that's joint, again, the same thing. If mom bought the house, and even if daughter's name's on it, New York State's going to say the whole house belongs to daughter. And, I mean, they will even take unreasonable positions. Let's say the daughter has an account that she's been working and she's making direct deposits of her checks 
into that account for years and years, but she put her mother's name on it. She's paying the Social Security, uh, the tax on it, her Social Security numbers. New York State will take the position that that's mom's money. Now, yeah, you'll win on an audit on that, but at the same time, you want to be, you know, you got to be prepared for that. Joint accounts, New York State will drag in the whole joint account on the person who died. And sometimes we've had problems over the years. If you're prepared, you got your bookkeeping ready, well, then you can do it and you can win the audit. In any event, I think we're running out of time for this week. Um, but if you have any questions about estate taxes, gift taxes, give us a call. I like making up estate plans, gift tax plans, where we try to hold our taxes to the minimum. We don't want more money to go to the government than needs to go to the government. So please don't forget to tune in next week at the same time and places. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all the way. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all the way. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.